Hello and welcome to episode number 271 of the Armin Show podcast, where we have done it all across here and there from wherever we have been. On this episode, we have Professor Corey J. Clark. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I should correct you already that I was an assistant professor right. formerly, but now I will be a visiting scholar. So I think you have to call me scholar Corey J. Clark or doctor or madam. I don't know, whatever. Doctor, madam, assistant, professor, previous professor, and soon to be scholar again, Corey J. Clark. Yeah. Why we are glad to have you on this program right here. Happy to be here. This is great. You know, Long live, good, warm communication. It is good. Simple as that. I agree. Right. You are situated in Ohio currently. How did you get a, uh, end up there? Um, well, I finished up my, I was an assistant professor of social psychology at Durham University in the UK. So I was living in Durham, England for the past two years. And I was moving back to the U.S. and I was supposed to move to New York, um, but it was the epicenter of coronavirus. And so I ended up um, moving to Ohio and kind of just staying here for the time being. So I'm living with my fiance. My family lives up a couple hours north of where I am right now. And we'll see what happens next. I don't know. I'm thinking of Cape Cod. Not sure. (laughs) Everything's remote right now, so you can work from anywhere. (laughs) This is true. Texas might become a hub of some form related yeah. to that. We don't know exactly what the future holds, and that's always how the future has been. Sometimes we're reminded of that. <laughs> cool feature. I am in Los Angeles, so we are in different parts of the country. This is. The I future. lived in Irvine, California for six years. Newport right. Beach. Irvine, yeah. Speaking of that, you got your PhD at University of California, Irvine, in the category of let me make sure I get exactly right. Social and personality psychology and quantitative methods. Tell me what led you into that category. Oh, yeah. So I, uh, when I was an undergrad, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a physics major or a philosophy major, and I was wavering between the two. Um, and just as part of a general education requirement, I was taking a social psychology course. This is at Ohio University. Um, and Emily Belchettis was a brand new assistant professor there. And she's a professor, associate professor, I think, at NYU now. Um, and she came into my class and was looking for research assistants. And she said that I would get to terrify people with tarantulas in the lab. And I was like, that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> so I sent her an email and I started working in her lab. And then I started working in her lab a lot. And basically, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my future. And she was like, you should get a PhD in social psychology. And I was like, all right. That's uh, good guidance. Right? The rest is history. <laughs> That's cool. We should do this yeah. thing. All right. I'll go ahead and do that whole complex yeah. thing, which will take multiple years. Yeah. Just because someone suggests it. But I did have a lot of fun working in her lab and uh, running all these like psychology experiments. So, and, and, I, and I do like social psychology. So it ended up working out. Although who knows what would have happened if I'd done philosophy or physics. It's true. It'd be a completely different fork in the road. Yes. You would be working alongside Lisa Randall at Harvard as an astrophysicist. <laughs> Who knows? I hope see. not, because then I made the wrong choice. <laughs> Paths. Now, in this category, why psychology and or philosophy as opposed to, let's say, the other elements? Did you have sort of an interest in human behavior, people more so than things? Is there something to that? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm not really sure. Philosophy was always interesting to me. I took my first philosophy class when I was in high school. I was taking classes at like a nearby university. Um, and I took this philosophy class. And I, I think my memory could be wrong, but I think my professor's name was Priscilla Saquiles. And she had like red curly hair and an eye patch. And she was so cool. <laughs> <laughs> um and up. yeah exactly so and so i think at that at that point i was like she's awesome i should be just like her i want to be a philosopher maybe the, maybe the pattern here is there are these like role models i had priscilla and she was badass and so then i thought i'll be a philosopher and then i met emily and i was like she's really cool and then i thought i'll be a social psychologist um but i i, I was always interested in philosophy and psychology and you know in terms of like the people versus things who knows a lot of my um i've noticed my areas of psychology i'm a moral and a political psychologist and they seem to be the two areas that have more men than women and i don't know what that is or why that is you have other areas like relationships research and like developmental psychology tend to be more female skewed so there must be something going on in terms of like how people's interests affect which areas they end up studying. But um, I really got into moral and political psychology, I think, because when I went to grad school, I was working with Pete Ditto, and he was a moral and political psychologist guy. Um, and I just liked what I was doing, so I kept doing it. A lot of it's just, you know, circumstances, I guess. Serendipity along the way. Yes. <laughs> and they're kind of like mentors that ended up becoming mentors in a way. Yeah. Along the way. This is the cool way. When you try to push things in existence, they don't work out great. It's like pushing a like a plug that doesn't fit into a wall where it doesn't fit and you just keep trying. That's not great. But if things mm -hmm. just flow and I go over here and this seems like it's valuable and that person appreciates that, okay, I'll go towards it and then you flow in the right place. That's kind of how my life has always gone, I think. Like I like I think I've always cast sort of a wide net and everything I'm doing and whichever opportunities pop up, that's the one I take and then I go. So I ended up in England. I applied for, I don't know, maybe like 20 to 30 jobs that year. And I think I got four or five campus interviews and I got one job offer and it was at Durham University. I guess I'm moving to England, <laughs> um, but it worked out great. Durham's one of the most beautiful cities in the world and I like the school and my colleagues. So. If you haven't been to Durham, I recommend you go. It's very pretty. When I at some point visit Scotland, which I will do with, uh, I'll be visiting my friend Mary, who has been on the show before, but at that point, maybe I'll do a slight trip to England when we're allowed out of the United States at some yeah. point. In one to 10 years. <laughs> In this next decade, I will be able to go towards the- Fingers crossed. <laughs> we no, you don't come here. Okay, all right, fine. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> But that's cool, Durham. And is it on the south or the east or the west? Or is in the northeastern coast. So it's actually only. I did take a day trip oh. up to Edinburgh. If oh. I pronounced that wrong. You did. Edinburgh. You pronounced it right. Edinburgh. I pronounced it right. Yeah. Edinburgh. Edinburgh. Yeah. Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's only like I think like an hour and a half up by train. So I went up there one day, but it was pretty. But it was very crowded. It's like a tourist area. It feels it feels like Disney World, the Disney World of Scotland, because there's so like many that. people. Yeah. Um, but I also went up to Scotland. I gave a talk at Abertay University, which is in Dundee, Scotland, which is a very different experience. Um, because a little bit more 
a, a smaller town, kind of quieter, more similar to Durham, actually. Um, you were the notable story that day. She's coming. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't think, I don't know about Did that. Did you hear? She but, came yesterday. Yeah, but, but Durham is up. It's up by Scotland, so it's a pretty easy, easy trip. That makes sense. Yeah. Now, along your studies, you have specified into certain categories. How would you describe some of the categories you've specified into? Yeah, so I say that I'm a moral political, moral and political psychologist. I say the moral side really because of my research on free will belief. So I've investigated how people's desires to punish um, can lead them to increase their beliefs in free will. Now, there are some people who are debating me on this, so maybe I'm wrong. Andrew Monroe as a paper that would have been just recently accepted, I think, um, challenging some of my research. But at least from my perspective, I've <laughs> very consistently found that um, when you increase people's desires to punish, they believe more in the concept of free will. Now, I don't think people have any kind of coherent um, conception of what free will is. I, I suspect everyday people don't think much about it as philosophers and psychologists. We're like, what is it? And we're like fighting over how you define it and does it exist? And what does it mean if it exists or if it doesn't exist? But I think everyday people, I mean, I, I know everyday people just kind of believe in it and they just, whatever it is, it's sort of this essence um, that they believe in, they believe people have. And I think for everyday people, it's really the thing that makes people responsible for their behavior. So whatever it is, it's the responsibility making thing. Um, so I have a bunch of different studies where I make people want to punish, usually by reading about uh, or being exposed to some kind of immoral behavior that another person does. Um, and I find that when you make people want to punish people more, they endorse free will belief more strongly. And so the suggestion here is that potentially one reason we have this belief that other people have free will is so that we can judge them, hold them morally responsible and punish them um, and, and, and do so justifiably. So, you know, when, when you're punishing another person, usually you're harming that person. And usually we think harming another person is wrong or it's bad. Um, and if you did it, other people should judge you. But when that person deserves it because we can say that's a bad person they they chose to be bad they're responsible for being bad um it makes us feel better about punishing that person and and that then that person's suffering in in turn by going to jail or whatever um it places the impetus so on them yes exactly then my my um more the political psychology side is um i study political bias mostly although more yeah, I guess I'd say political, <laughs> political bias mostly, um, but really how people's political commitments or identification with, you know, I'm a Democrat or Republican or I'm left-leaning or right-leaning, how that affects how they interact with the world. So how they interact with other people, how they interact with information, and how that influences what they continue to believe is true or what they start to believe is true about the world. So people tend to search for information that confirms their political desires or um, their political beliefs. And because they search for information in that way, they sort of have a biased view of what is true about the world. And that leads them to become ever more confident that they are right. And that people who disagree with them politically are wrong or bad or stupid or something. So um, 
people, people's political commitments really shape the way they interact with the external world in a way that, that changes what they believe is actually true. Things that, that should be empirically true or false. Um, but things aren't always that, that clear. And, you know, it's, it's hard to know what is true and false. So there's a lot of room for people to really construct the truth um, based on what, what they want to be true. Right. The bias pervades and then it can build up on itself, like with confirmation bias. How often do you look at the different, uh, what are they called? Like the different biases that we come up with confirmation bias. Or I once saw a chart that had like 200 of them. In the <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are tons of different kinds of biases. Um, and bias isn't even a very clearly defined word. Like it's used in so many different ways and it's used in so many different ways by psychologists even. Um, so there's not even like a technical jargon term um, that you could default to, but there are lots of different kinds of biases. And there, I'm sure there is some research that tries to carefully understand how different levels of bias feed back into other levels. So like one type of bias is just, um, so one type of bias is how you seek information, right? So this is something that I think is often call, called selective exposure. So you're more likely to approach information um, that confirms your beliefs. So if you want to believe that like climate change is going to be the worst thing in the whole entire world and like we should stop everything to try to minimize the impact of climate change, then when you do like some kind of Google search, you're going to look for articles that support that view. If you have the opposite view, if you think climate change is a hoax, it's not real, like this is something that Democrats are just, they're trying to mislead people to get what they want then you can search for information that's going to confirm that view. And you can find information to support pretty much any view you want to believe. Um, and, and even you also can just interpret information in a way that supports your belief. So, so that's one level. Um, but then also there's um, what I call, it's called, it's called a bunch of different things. Sometimes it's called biased assimilation. I sort of, what do I call it? I don't even remember what I, what I refer to it as in some of my papers, but it's what happens when you actually are confronted with information. So when you see a piece of information, and this is, let's say you were unable to avoid it, right? You were confronted with something that you don't want to believe up. is you true. No yeah, uh -huh. pops up on your Twitter feed mm -hmm. and you're like, that can't be right. <sighs> um, then you're more likely to evaluate that information as higher quality information when it supports your beliefs than when it... Um, opposes your beliefs. So I've done this even with, I, I do these little studies with my students all the time and I'll have them evaluate um, studies where I even will ask them like, is the sample size big enough to draw this conclusion? And if it comes to the conclusion they want to believe, they're like, yes, that's a great sample size. And then if it comes to the conclusion they don't want to believe, they're like, nope, way too tiny. You need like three to four times as many. <laughs> so, so like in these cases, we're evaluating scientific information in some cases and we decide it's better quality information if it supports our beliefs. So what happens is people are seeking out information that supports their beliefs. Then they get that information. If it supports their belief, that's great information. And then they incorporate into their belief system. And then they're all the more confident and sure that everything they believe is right. And then just feeds back into a circle. And then there's the, there's the person element too, where we surround ourselves with people, our friends, our Twitter feeds, our Facebook feeds, um, with people who share our beliefs and who are going to share information with us that confirms our beliefs. So 
yeah, pretty much you, we sort of like organize our whole informational and social worlds in a way that's going to allow us to confront information that makes us think we're more right and avoid information that might make us feel a little bit more doubt or uncertain about our political beliefs. How much of that might be like uh, a base form of uh, self-preservation attached to ego? Yeah, there are lots of different explanations for why people might do it. So some people say it's because you sort of identify with a group and then you want to fit in with that group. Um, you want to get status in that group. And that's an argument I've made before that, you know, you can get you can get friends and status. You can do this, especially on Twitter, right? You get followers um, if you're really good at making the fight for liberalism or conservatism or whatever it is. We're going to do this. We're right. Yeah. I've got 10,000 followers now. Wow. Um, so you can do, so that's a reason. Um, there's probably, there's definitely an aspect of ego to it. And that's, that's apparent in um, something that are called self-serving biases. So these aren't necessarily related to political beliefs, but they, they definitely could be. And it's stuff like, um, there's this effect called the better than average effect. Um, it's called a couple of different things, but that's one thing it's called. And it's basically just the finding that everyone, for the most part, rates themselves as above average on everything positive and below average on everything negative. Um, and there are tons of these kinds of self-serving biases. People just, people just tend to think that they're better than they probably really are. Um, and so it's pro and there's something called it's like depressive realism or something, but people who are more depressed tend to be more realistic about themselves. And so it's these like illusions that we're better that, than we really are. It might somehow be helpful for like our psychological well-being. Um, but, but probably the reason or one reason we have this is because if we think we're great, then we'll be better able to convince other people we're, we're, we're great. And then it actually will help us get ahead in life. If I think that I'm, you know, 10 IQ points smarter than I really am. And then I make that a big part of my identity. And then I'm like, oh, I'm smart. And I make people believe that I'm smart. Then they might be like, oh, Corey is really smart. <laughs> um, and especially for traits that are really difficult to prove, like, you know, like intelligence is a really complicated, like it's a really complicated construct. And without an IQ test, it's hard to know. Um, whereas you'd be less likely to inflate things like I can do a backflip. Because if you tell people you can do a backflip and you can't do a backflip and then they're like, do a backflip, then they'll know you're lying. <laughs> so we should be more likely to like inflate our, our own characteristics when they're things that are difficult for other people to disprove, for other people to call us out on. Mm -hmm. Those are the items that don't relate as well in YouTubes or TikToks or Instagram videos because backflip, <laughs> everybody's like, that's definitely a backflip. But if there's a new one, yeah. it's like some sort of level of intelligence or ability to conversate or ability to empathize well that's i, can't, I don't know if i should click like on that I detail. <laughs> nuance, the nuance so you're saying so you're saying nuance things so, that are nuanced are less likely to be yeah. successful on youtube uh, because it's hard to, yeah and yeah, that's interesting and I, I only like looked up tiktok for the first i mean i've seen the videos around but i like looked it up for the first time today and i was too intimidated by it so i'm done <laughs> I only just joined Instagram like two weeks ago, <laughs> a little bit behind the times. <laughs> you only in installed Instagram, you said two weeks ago? Uh, it might be like a month ago. But that is recently. very recent. Mm -hmm. is, that is the, but actually, 
you know, related to that, I have to include this one because I never mentioned actually in the podcast. The first time I opened Instagram sometime in 2014, I was like, I don't know what I'm looking at. To this day, I use it and such, but I still don't know what I'm looking at really. It's not like what I connect with, like text on articles or Reddit or research papers or something because I can connect with it and there's messages, but it's sort of like there's a picture, somebody's showcasing something for status and then everybody says fire. <laughs> I'm not really sure what I'm looking at, but it's nice that... It's cool to see. I have a friend with a yacht. Sure. So. <laughs> and here it is. And apparently it goes onto the water. Check it out. There's something there and it makes sense to somebody, but I've never really been able to grasp onto it. Yeah. Actually, on that point, I always like to check which of any social media or services have you most connected with over the years? Like this past um, five years. Um, I guess in the past five years, I probably Twitter, which is Twitter. I have such complex feelings about, and I, su- I suspect like just about everyone has pretty complicated feelings about Twitter because it's really great in so many ways. I've met a lot of people. I've like, I would consider lots of other scholars that I didn't even know before, like friends now, maybe they're like Twitter friends, but they're still friends. And we like DM and um so i've met a lot of people that way i've discovered a lot of really cool research that way i'm able to share my own research and like sometimes i'll tweet one of my own articles and then my article gets like five thousand reads and you know it would have gotten like two otherwise um so it's been really great for that but people do seem punchy (laughs) <laughs> they seem like they they think it's okay to be nasty or to people on Twitter than they would be in real life in a way like I'll see colleagues of mine people that I know and respect that are totally decent lovely human beings when I meet see them at a conference and then on Twitter they're just vicious um, and so it really seems to bring out this side of people's personality that doesn't exist anywhere else which I don't like and then the even scarier thing to me is just how much power angry people on Twitter can have to affect organizational decision-making. So in academia in the past, just even two months, there have been at this point, countless cases of scholars who said something on their private Facebook, or maybe said something on Twitter, they said something in a podcast interview or Um, who knows, maybe it's a paper they wrote 10 years ago and a handful of people, and there's more than a handful, maybe like a a few dozen people on Twitter will start piling on that scholar. Um, Sometimes a petition is created to get that person fired. And then sometimes the person is fired. They're asked to step down. They lose some permissions or not allowed to mentor students anymore. And it starts on Twitter. (laughs) So it's, somebody on Twitter who had, you know, 10,000, 5,000 followers, 10,000 followers, 20,000 followers, one person decided to be outraged and was able to, you know, collect a mob of people to get enough people to be outraged simultaneously to affect prominent, educated, intelligent people at really powerful institutions to make life-changing decisions for people people who had a career for 20 30 years it's over now because somebody on twitter (laughs) got got angry and that to me is 
terrifying. Like I almost feel like this is a totally ridiculous and unreasonable proposal, but I almost feel like there should be some sort of law where if like the reasons for firing someone started on Twitter, then you can't fire the person. There has to be a more legitimate process. Or, or that is totally unreasonable and ridiculous. <laughs> It it probably is, but like one thing that I find crazy is that because these mobs they they blow up so quickly and then they're so relentless, the organizations often make these decisions. They feel a lot of pressure to make them really quickly. So you'll see, oh, people on Twitter are pissed about this person, and then one week later they're fired. Two weeks later they're fired. Like this person's been working for you for twenty years have the decency to do like an actual careful slow thorough investigation it shouldn't happen in a week i don't think you did your job if it happened in a week like you didn't and and then and then on top of that it's like people's emotions are really high so like if a dean is getting thousands of emails from people angry emails saying how could you employ this person like are you a sexist are you a racist like i'm sure they think they take that very personally and so they feel personally attacked. And so they're making decisions about someone else's life in this like hyper defense mode. So sorry, that's just like a really long way to answer your question. <laughs> no, it's true. You know, I want to add in, you kind of reminded me of when you just said that the, it's right, like 20 year career and then suddenly in a week, boom, same thing. Mm-hmm. Rapper Jay-Z was talking about how he'll work on an album for months and months and months. And then now based on the internet they'll put it out and then like two hours later somebody will say this is a classic like this is a classic album he's like it doesn't mean anything you haven't listened to it for a week you haven't taken in all the instruments you haven't taken all the detail it's impossible you think it's good you think it's not good great but i'm not going to give weight to it because you haven't given it the depth i put into it yeah so that's like the opposite side of it maybe so something can be things can be taken down or they can be blown up in hours and the nuance and, is missed. Oh, completely missed. Completely missed. So that's that's really scary to me. And I don't know what should happen there, but the way it's going is pretty pretty terrifying, I think. One thing Do you, are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter. I have my first name. Do you I like got it? it in 2009. So it's just my name. So it's super cool. Hmm, I like nice. it in terms of what you just described. You can see people's research or their books or their content they have messages they can put out insights they can put sets of insights like 10 in a row now but then it sometimes turns into i don't know if it's bots at this point or people i don't know what i'm looking at but it just turns into a bunch of not nuanced it doesn't look like a person i go outside and there's like yeah. a car and there's a tree and there are people and then i go on the internet they just wave to you and you're like hi <laughs> we're no humans hey. that's cool <laughs> And then if I go on different social media services, each one has a certain thing that doesn't look like reality. Facebook Mm -hmm. doesn't really look like reality. Instagram doesn't really look, Twitter, some parts of it. So I don't give it much weight because once again, I go back outside and I don't see any of that. That's, but see, that's, that's true. And I agree. Like when I go out in the real world, I'm like, oh, everyone is so great. And like humans get along really well and we're really trusting of each other and respectful of each other and, and that's not what it looks like. So it feels like it's not real. But then you see these very real consequences of it, like the people getting fired and, you know, like anytime I, I see this particularly, obviously, in academia. So it's these people whose careers are severely, if not permanently damaged because of what happens on Twitter. And so then 
so then even though it feels like it's a sort of artificial reality it's an artificial reality that's interacting with the real world in a really impactful way at least for some people like probably for most people on twitter twitter does nothing for them but for some people twitter ruins their life so that's i don't know counterpoint to it <laughs> just for a select few they're like i'm never using this service again whatever happened here yeah is not good <laughs> and twitter's me. like oh no <laughs> we've lost one we've lost the person darn it one. yeah it can be very hard hitting and also, well, two topics come to mind. One about, well, first I'll go to the one about free will, which is kind of a segue back, but I want to check as in terms of free will, what do you think about the thought that at each moment, if we cut that moment in time, we as people or all organisms on the planet, if we went back to that exact moment with all the variables mm. of the earth the same, would do the exact same thing. Thoughts? <sighs> yeah, well, that is a great question. <laughs> Do I have the answer? Um, I suppose I'm less familiar with like the whole physics side of the debate, but when people talk about like randomness and indeterminism in the universe, I, su I suppose things could happen differently. That might have been the dumbest thing that's ever come out of my mouth. I'm not sure, but, but it, it, it's possible. But the way I sort of think about it is even if things could happen differently, it wouldn't be in a way that would make a person more responsible, right? So something has to compel a person to make a decision. Um, and that whatever compels the person to make that decision is some combination of all of the previous causes in their entire life. So it's their genes, it's they were born into a family, they had their parents, they had their family, they were raised in this environment, they went to the school, they met these friends. Um, and all of those things add up to make a person who they are at any given moment. And that person who they are at any given moment would make a decision based on who they are at that given moment. So even if through some kind of randomness, a person could do one of two different things, there wouldn't be any like logical reason for it. Cause if there was a logical reason for it, that would be a different condition that existed prior to that moment. Uh -huh. So, so either if people can do one of two different things and everything's the same up to that point, then they're doing it for no good reason or they can't and they're doing it for a good reason, but they couldn't have done anything else because they did it because of all of the reasons that existed prior to that moment. Am I explaining that clearly? Yeah. Yes. So, so to me, like, even though it could be possible that people could do one of two possible things, even if they could, and everything was exactly the same before that moment, that wouldn't make them any more responsible than if they could only do one possible thing. In fact, it almost might make them less, res less responsible because then it's random, right? It's like, you're the exact same person. And then the one universe will flip the coin in his head and the other is tails. Um, so... So yeah, my, per my personal beliefs are that the intuition that most humans have about responsibility and decision-making are probably, I don't know if I should say wrong or incomplete or just 
we weren't necessarily designed to think about human behavior in the way scientists have now come to be able to think about human behavior. You know, we didn't evolve to think about, yeah, like that's not normal (laughs) at all. Um, We shouldn't be analyzing the causes of our behavior. Other animals don't do it. They just do what they want to do. They just do what they're compelled to do based on what they are and the environment so um, dopamine was transferred from here to here let's watch that dopamine molecule exactly i'm hungry um so so yeah i i I think the the intuition that humans have about choice and control and like ultimate responsibility are probably wrong um but i don't necessarily know that and this is where i deviate from some people is that even though I think that's probably wrong and then people technically aren't morally responsible. I'm not sure even if logically we should do away with moral responsibility, I'm not sure that we actually should because we evolved these desires to hold people morally responsible and to punish other people because punishing other people makes other people behave better and moral judgment. People care about their moral reputation so much that even just saying you're a mean person, that makes that person feel bad and it makes them not want to be mean anymore. So even though our moral judgments has like an intuitive system might be misguided in some ways, maybe in all of the ways, um, they're probably still really useful or they definitely are still really useful. So I would be like hesitant. You know, there are lots of philosophers who are like, we should like completely get rid of the conception of responsibility. It'll make us so much more empathic and we'll like understand people who commit crimes. You know, they're not necessarily bad people. They were, they had these horrible lives. They were in these really bad situations. And it's like, yes, that's, that's true. But at the same time, if we were to get rid of the, the idea of moral responsibility, what would be the ultimate outcome from like a utilitarian perspective? Would the world be a better or worse place? And I don't know. Um, but I could imagine it potentially could be a lot worse. So I would at least be cautious. <laughs> Caution thrown to in, kept with the wind. You know, <laughs> as you were describing this, it made me think of something from today. So this is a classic current event thrown in today okay. and or yesterday or the last two days. I just saw an article <laughs> very recently. That How long between when we do this and when, when you post it? It always changes, but this one is out of five days. So you should say last week. Last darn right. Good. You know, yeah. <laughs> I'm a big fan of assistant <laughs> professor, madam, upcoming scholar, Corey J. Clark, because that's true. Last week, yeah. there was something that happened. <laughs> that's some way to go. Last week, there was a thing that occurred. Oh, but it was, so two people were, their existences were ended in relation to the, something they did. And then that had like a death, death penalty. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the second guy, his last things he said, he said, he said a message like, sorry, I caused pain. And then he said, this taking my life has serves no purpose whatsoever. And that was his last thing. Mm-hmm. And that was, I think, yesterday. Touch, or last week, last week. Taking his life isn't serving any purpose in the sense that it's not making the world a better place. Right. Yeah. So deeper question, how does that connect with... Um, that's a, that's a hefty moral judgment that was taken upon him in terms of punishment thoughts on the matter is it i mean that's a statement to make before you end yeah <laughs> that is quite a statement um yeah there are two 
you would say one part of punishment is to stop an individual from performing harmful actions in the future. So that would be why, like, well, one reason anyway, you'd have jail. If this person keeps committing crimes over and over, we might think, oh, we, you know, like, if we have you out in the world, you're going to keep harming other people, whatever the crimes are doing, whether they're assaulting people, whatever. Yeah. And then the other side is people knowing that they will get punished makes other people better behaved. So, and I'm not saying I endorse the death penalty. I think that's really complicated. And I think my personal feelings are that I'm against it, but it's one of those ones where people make different, I think I'm probably against it, but I get why some people think that it's the right thing to do, even though it seems kind of counterintuitive. And how dare um, you see the other side as well? You're only <laughs> supposed to be on one end of the thought and then be able to reach out to the other end. I know, because my political views are constantly shifting. <laughs> Darn it, adapting um, to the world. <laughs> but, but yeah, the, the other part of it is that does, and I actually think the research might show that knowing that you could receive death penalty isn't that, that big of a deterrent because going to prison for life is a pretty unpleasant thought as well. And people thinking that you're a bad person is a pretty unpleasant thought, but let's pretend it did. If having the death penalty and people knowing if I usually, it has to be something, a pretty bad crime has to be like rape and murder kind of thing or kidnapping and murder, or maybe even just some really horrible murders. If I did that, I might get the death penalty um, if that deterred crime and it made other people not want to murder other people, then you might say it serves some purpose. Um, but if it doesn't serve any greater purpose than just life imprisonment, then there would really be no need for it. Um, and so it's possible that it really doesn't serve any purpose. Um, although the, the punishment itself surely does like, people don't do a lot of things because they know they don't get punished. Like I would probably like, if I could rob a bank and be a millionaire and I wouldn't get punished, then I really might do it. Let's that, go. Okay. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I could use a million bucks right now. <laughs> Send me the address. It's a Wells Fargo. Yeah. Everyone's going to be like, Corey's a bank robber. <laughs> but what I'm saying is almost anyone would rob a bank if they could, and there would be no consequences and they can right. know that there would be no consequences. So, Mm-hmm. The con- there have to be some consequences right these guidelines are set up for the collective yes oh i, I gotta throw that in there because i always like to include this one as a brain are we all a collective brain if we put everybody together are we just big one all humans are one big brain and each person is like a decision tree that impacts a little decision being made um not to my knowledge <laughs> <laughs> who says we are one collective brain well, other than are me, you thinking like collective unconscious type stuff or is this something else it's sort of like not physically mm-hmm. but in terms of if we looked at all people together as one large brain then we'd have segments of people like the more uh political and they would be competing in certain category and then the logical and they'd be battling and it's like our neurons fighting each other and whichever one wins that's the decision <laughs> that's made mm. interesting yeah that might be true in some ways it's like a cognitive evolution sort of thing yeah i don't know if i would necessarily call it a brain Mm -hmm. but then there's there's something else too which is that we are like the internet you could call the internet a brain kind of like we 
every individual is so dependent on other people for our own knowledge about the world. Like I'm an expert in such a teeny tiny little piece. If I'm an expert on anything, it's a very small little sliver. Um, And I rely on other people for things like, I don't know, like, I think I probably shouldn't eat cheesecake all day, every day, not because I've ever Googled anything about that, but like somebody probably told me that I shouldn't eat cheesecake all day, every day. And I was like, okay, I won't do it. (laughs) So it's like, you know, like the humans, each individual human is like a tiny, a teeny tiny piece of the world of knowledge that we have. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so but then, yeah, you're right. There's also this element of competition. So we have like competing ideas. And then I think of that more of like, yeah, cognitive evolution. And um, okay. you, you hope the hope, you hope the better ideas went out. But I'm not sure that's always true. Maybe the ideas that people like more went out right. rather than the ideas that are more right. Um, which is why probably one reason why people have a lot of really weird beliefs (laughs) right because sometimes numbers can outdo what seems to be logically fitting yes yeah a lot of people still believe in witches i think so that's interesting there are witches somewhere (laughs) they do i'm sorry do you believe in witches i didn't mean to insult you (laughs) there might be some kinds of witches i don't know (laughs) just for context what would a witch be in that context they're like they would float they would um are they still people I assume a witch and I'm probably, there's probably someone who like is a witch expert That's listening true. and they're going to be like, this girl has no idea what she's talking about. But I would assume a witch has to have some kind of special powers that a human doesn't have. Right. I would assume that's okay. something a witch would have to have. And I am currently not in belief of witches <laughs> putting that on the map. I want people to know you that. think all humans are humans. Yes, I'm going to go with yeah. that one. Wow. I'm putting all humans That's in the human. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing a bold. We're bold out here. <laughs> on my old website yeah. in 2008, I had a section of articles about just boldness. That was one of my categories. Yeah. Yes. Mm. And I wrote an article called 100 Ways to Show Boldness that got shared like a lot, a lot, a lot. People liked nice. 100 Ways articles at that time. Like 100 Ways to nice. you know, get your finances in order. They don't like those 100, art- 100 Ways articles anymore? They do, but... Yeah. The blogging moment was more that time, and now it's more like mm. the TikTok uh, influencer. Do you know what I hate when it says like 20 ways or like 20 cutest cities, t- small towns in the US, and then you click on it. And you're like, I want to see the 20 cutest small Next towns page. in the US. And it's a Next slideshow. Page. Next page. Nothing hey, drives me crazier than the slideshow. You could have probably visited the 20 cities sooner than the slideshow. Would have been <laughs> exactly. <something. laughs> Exactly. I have to load the second page. I'm just Sometimes I make you click like three times to get to the number two because they're like, here's a different picture of the same city. You know yeah. what? Actually, they're making it easier for you to travel because then after you do that, you're like, well, traveling's easier. I'll get a passport. All that stuff's easier than clicking all you're these right. X's and waiting for the loading. It's motivation to actually go and see the towns yourself. Inspiration through these wonderful websites. Yeah. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thanks for the assistance. <laughs> Corey, I would like to mention you're very difficult to get along with and everybody should know that. Um, <laughs> in this case i would like to say i always like to check maybe we'll have you on in the future who knows right mm. that would be great but for this current moment what is one message you would want to tell all people of the planet about um what you have studied or something you'd want them to know for people i should really have thought about that i always like to do this one on this right now oh 
It's got to be on the spot. It's got to be on the spot. Yeah. Here's one thing that I wish more people would appreciate. It's that if there are a lot of smart people who disagree on something, whatever that something is, there are probably good reasons for both sides. And probably the truth is not one side or the other. And it's something more nuanced in between the two. And if you can appreciate that, then you should have some humility about your own beliefs. You should not be certain. If you have extreme certainty about any like super contentious political issue, that's a good sign that you're not really being open to all of the information. Um, And that's what I kind of try to think. I think if there are really smart people who disagree with me on something, then I must not be, maybe this is something I'm biased about. It's something I'm not aware of all of the data and I need to do more research. Um, And then I think if we could just reduce people's extreme extremity and their certainty about all of these things, then maybe we can make better assumptions about people and think people who disagree with me aren't morally bad people. They just have different information than I do. And you should just want to learn what that information is and not hate them and call them terrible people. <laughs> this is a That's what message. I'm striving for anyway. <laughs> I don't know if I live up to it, but I'm aware that that would be a good thing to do if I could do it. I was just thinking as you were saying it, how cool it is that you're saying it, but in fact, the way you emote or express yourself, I don't know how to describe it, it matches what you're describing because if more individuals, let's say, were communicating the way you were, it would be a lighter, it would be a lighter tone. So maybe this is a self-serving suggestion where I'm like, everybody should be just like me because I'm doing it the perfect way. (laughs) It's it's really self-serving, unbelievable. And it's probably slightly self-serving for me because I'd want to see more of that in the world. So this is, we're just too biased. most people would want to see more of that but maybe not maybe maybe some people would like to see more certainty and extremity and that's actually true i do know people who are like no more time to be doubting things and questioning things it's time for action we've been we've been dilly-dallying around like trying to like do these stupid things all along and trying to understand each other and have nuance we don't now's not the time for nuance now's the time for action so that's another perspective that I would consider. Um, and think, maybe they're right. I don't know. I think in that category, as you just described, we definitely, I believe, would be in the minority based on what yeah, we've seen. Because punchy perhaps. and more... It's yeah. also possible that it's good to have all kinds of people. Like maybe in right. an optimal society, you want people who are going to be like, time for action. Let's go, go, go. Look at these big problems. And then there are other people who are like, let's take a step back and see if the problems are the right problems and we're trying to solve them the right way. And maybe we need better data. Maybe we need to figure these out. Um, maybe we need to listen to these people over here because there are a lot of them and they're pretty smart too. And they're saying the opposite thing. Um, so, so maybe, maybe really you want a balance. And so in that case, just be yourself. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have great wisdom. <laughs> Look, I want to say, that was some great wisdom. Biased bank robber. Kidding. <laughs> Assistant professor, madam, also mm-hmm. upcoming scholar, Corey J. Clark. I would like to thank you for having been on this episode of the show. Thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun. Same here. And we are out. I usually cut. cut it off there. I cut it. <laughs>
Thank <laughs> you.